Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series called Prayer, Power, and Wisdom, and we hope that this blesses you. If you're looking for more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org. We're memorizing a scripture verse together, so let's do that. We got Proverbs 11, 11. That's what we're working on this summer, and it goes with our series. So can you say it with me? Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. Let's try it one more time. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. I know I said torn down. You know, I actually... Disclosure, I already memorized this verse in another version years ago, and anyway, destroyed messes me up. But uh, anyway, that's, this is the one we're working with, so I, have to, I will stick with it. Through the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is destroyed. The blessing of the upright. One of the blessings that the upright bring to the cities where we live is compassion. Compassion is part and parcel with the very heart of God. And so as the people of God, we're best suited to bring the compassion of God to the cities where we live, which is a blessing to that place. Um, compassion, it's like, it's one of like the core character traits of, of who God is as a person. Early on, as he began to reveal himself to mankind, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God told Moses this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Later on in Lamentations chapter 3 verse 12, the prophet Jeremiah says that because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed for his compassions never fail. Moving on up the timeline, you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. The Apostle Paul speaks about God, and he calls him the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So compassion is, is really a part of God's character. It's a part of who he is. It comes from his heart. And because it comes from his heart, one of the distinctive traits of his people is also compassion. Theologian W.L. Walker, he said this, he says, Christianity may be said to be distinctively the religion of compassion. I believe that's true. If you stop and think about it, think about all the Christian hospitals in the world. Think about all of the Christian orphanages, the relief agencies, the development agencies, counseling centers, so on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Consider the billions and bi hundreds of billions of dollars every year that gets donated by Christians to support these different works around the world. I think you'd quickly agree. Christians are some of the most generous and compassionate people on the planet, which simply reflects the God we worship. He's compassionate. We're compassionate. We have his heart, don't we? And I think we would all agree that compassion is needed in our world today. It seems like compassion is in very short supply. And my premise this morning is this, that we as the people of God are in the greatest position to actually bring the compassion of God to this world, us, better than anyone else. 
If we're going to bless the city that God has called us to live in, then we first have to have compassion for it. And it's sort of a tricky message because uh, I really felt this in the first service because I can't, like, a preacher can't make people be compassionate. Like, that's, I can't make you do this. You know what I mean? Like, if I do that, that's, that's all wrong. That's, that's religion. That's me going, hey, here's another rule you have to do. And that's not the heart of this message. It's not, hey, like, hey, you, you better be better people. That's not. But at the same time, I, I believe with all my heart that if we can get close to the heart of God, if we can just maybe spend this next half hour just looking at the heart of God, and just looking at the compassion that he has, that maybe that'll rub off on you and me. So that's what I'm hoping for, okay? So, um, but I'm thinking there's a lot of things that fight against compassion in our lives. Have you noticed that? That it's hard, actually, to have compassion. Have you noticed? Like, maybe you're tired. I don't know. There's, there is such a thing as compassion fatigue. I've actually heard that's a term people have. Maybe you're just tired. That, that wears on it. Maybe it's uh, all of the division that we're experiencing. It's really hard to have compassion when there's so much hate going around. Or maybe I'm just busy. You're just wrapped up in your own stuff. Everybody's got bills and kids and, you know, you name it. We got full schedules. Everybody's dance cards full. How, how, how do I have compassion with that. I was thinking there's some other things, like bigger things. Like it's hard to have compassion for a place when all you want to do is leave it. And, and I hear a lot of people like speak about Connecticut and they complain about the taxes and we complain about the politics and all that. And people say, I just can't wait to get out of this state. It's really hard, isn't it, to have compassion for the people who live in Connecticut when all you want to do is get out of Connecticut? Maybe one of the first steps that we need to take is to say, oh, Lord, give me a love for this place. I want to invest in this place so that I can begin to have a heart for the people who live here. God, if you've planted me here, then I want to be used here. Make sense? Maybe another thing that step gets in the way of compassion is, is it's really impossible to have compassion for people over whom you feel morally superior. And there's a lot of moral superiority going on these days. I'm, I'm better than you. We're, we, we live in a culture that loves to label people, and by their label, we determine if that person is a friend or a foe. And so, you know, if you share the same political beliefs as I do, well, we're friends. We can stand and talk all day. But if you don't, I'm not into you. See, this kills compassion, doesn't it? If what I carry, i got to believe that if what I carry as a man of God or you as a woman of God, if what we carry is the compassion of God, then i got to think that it doesn't matter how the person votes. It doesn't matter what the person believes. Like God's compassion is, is not limited to people that I agree with. It's not limited to people that I like. Hmm. And while we're at it, let's talk about judging. We live in a very judgmental society as well. I definitely can't have compassion for people if I'm judging them. We live in really weird times, don't we? We're like, we're like you can do the grossest of things, and that's okay, but if you say that's wrong, you're judged for being evil. Isn't that, 
interesting things, kind of interesting, weird times with all of the moral posturing that we live in and the virtue signaling going on. It kind of feels like we're in a, in a competition to see who's the most loving and compassionate, as if to say, see, look at the flag I fly. Look at the sign I got in my front yard. Look at the stuff I post. See how loving I am? And the implication is that because you don't post the same thing or fly the same flag or stick the same sign in your yard, you're not loving. I'm more loving than you are. So we got a lot of people proving that they're more loving than everybody else. <laughs> I'm just saying it's really hard to have compassion in, a, in an environment like that. And last I checked, love doesn't boast, does it? Love doesn't make a big show out of itself. And that kind of flagrant, self-righteous morality that's going on, that kills compassion. And if I think about compassion, compassion is very unassuming, isn't it? Compassion is very, um, it's not flashy at all. It doesn't make a big deal about itself. It's just, there's a need and I'm meeting the need. Quiet, simple, straightforward. It's not, it's not taking a picture. It's not a PR opportunity. It just that seems to be like that's the genuine spirit of compassion. It's just unassuming. It's not showy or flashy. So we live in this compassion-starved culture, which means that the people of God with the compassion of God really are in the best position to change things, I think. I think our culture's ripe for a group of people just like you and me, filled with the compassion of God, unleashed on the world, Standing in stark contrast to all of the fake compassion in our world is the compassion of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you agree that if there was ever someone who had moral superiority over everybody else, it would be Jesus? Amen? And if there was ever somebody who could actually judge other people for their bad choices, it would be Jesus. And yet, isn't it ironic that he's known as probably one of the most compassionate people to ever walk our planet. How did Jesus do it? I, I think, man, it ought to be easy. If you think about it, like, it ought to be easy for us to have compassion because we're all bozos on this bus. It's just one bozo being nice to another bozo in a sense. But, like, you got Jesus. He's the God of the universe, perfect. You, the gap is amazing, and yet... How is it that he is so compassionate and you and I struggle with it? I don't know that I have the total answer to that question this morning, but we can take a stab at it. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 9, verse 35 through 38. We see it, get a little snapshot out of the life of Jesus. And it says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
I read verses 35 and 36. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news, healing, helping. It gives me a picture of what Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says about Jesus. It says that Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with them. I love the simplicity of that statement. What did Jesus do? Ah, he went around doing good. Like, it kind of summarized it. And I think, what did Jesus' people do? Ah, we go around doing good. And, and that's Jesus. And who does he help? Notice the word all. All. All who are under the power of the devil. That pretty much sums up every human being, doesn't it? That's the human condition. All. So Jesus didn't just help those who agreed with him. He didn't just help those who were like him or that he liked. He helped all. He was an equal opportunity do-gooder. When he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. In Hebrew, the word compassion is the word rakam, and it means literally to commiserate. So you're in misery, and I'm feeling your misery with you. I'm stepping into it, so we're commiserating. In, in Greek, the Greek word that Matthew's writing in Greek, the word he uses is a lot more difficult to pronounce. Forgive me if you're a Greek expert. It's splagsnitsomai, which literally means to have yearning bowels. Yearning, you know, have you ever had that feeling like you're just sick to your stomach about something? You see a need, you see a problem, and you just, it, and you literally have a physical reaction to it. You're sick to your, that's compassion. That's like schnitzamai, if I'm saying that right. To have yearning bowels. You know, I remember a few years ago, I went through this period of time where it seemed like every time I saw somebody who had a physical um, uh, disability, I just, I started to cry. I remember sitting at the traffic light, at a traffic light in Hartford one day, and here across the streets, this man with, with crutches and his legs, he had some kind of condition, and he's, and he's hobbling across the, the, the street, and I'm just sitting in my car, and I'm just starting to cry for this guy, walking in front of me, and I'm praying like, Lord, would you just give me the gift of healing? I'd love to be able to park the car and be healed. Yeah, I'd love that. You know, and my heart was just breaking for him and for all. I'd see somebody in a wheelchair wheeling down the street. Same thing. I don't know what it was. Compassion? I don't know what the Lord was doing because I don't feel that way now. You know, I don't cry. But it was just seemed like it was a season of time. And then I know years ago, uh, back 17, 16 years ago, I, I had the similar kind of experience at, a, at an orphanage in Brazzaville, Congo. Just surrounded by these all of these broken, hurting kids. And I mean, I, I think I left a piece of my heart in that orphanage. I, I literally do. Those kids still haunt me. I still think about them. You know what I mean? You've probably had a similar sort of thing where you, you encounter a need and it just grabs your gut from the inside. That's compassion. You see, that's kind of the point of it. Compassion's not just, I feel bad. It's more than just moral posturing, demanding that somebody do something about that. It's, it's not just, you know, posting online saying, look at all the bad stuff. That's, that is not compassion. Compassion is this quiet strength 
that just moves me to do something about that. I'm driven by it. I'm not demanding that you do something about it. I'm doing something about it because I have the compassion. I'm the one that's moved by it. Does that make sense? Compassion is extremely, I guess, personal in a sense. I see a need and I meet the need. It changes your schedule. It changes your budget because you're moved to do something about it. In English, the etymology of the word compassion, it comes from Latin. We have two words, com, passion, com meaning with, and then passion meaning to suffer. So it literally means to suffer with. You know, it wasn't until the 1500s that the word passion was used for kind of how we use it now. We typically think of passion, we think a hot and steamy night of romance kind of thing. And that's not at all what it originally meant. Up until the 1500s, the word passion literally meant to suffer, to, to struggle. And so compassion means I'm suffering with, I'm stepping into your trouble, and I'm feeling it with you, and I'm walking with you through it. Compassion has a hold on you. You don't have it. It seems to have you, in a sense. And Jesus sees these crowds and what does he see? And you notice, first of all, he sees them. See, compassion sees a need. It, compassion, it, it's looking, see? If I don't see the need, it's hard to have compassion for it. So Jesus sees it. And then Jesus sees them as harassed and helpless. In the Greek, these are two very graphic words. The word harass in the Greek literally means to be skinned alive. So it's the idea of just extreme agitation, just extreme, I'm unsettled, I'm not at peace, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not at rest, you know, I can't rest, I'm, I'm harassed. You know anybody who's being harassed lately? I know a lot of people, I look around, I see a lot of harassed people. People who are not at peace, not settled. People who aren't happy. People who are confused. They don't even know who they are. I see a lot of people that are harassed. And Jesus saw them as helpless. The word helpless means literally to fling. To, like you're flicking a bug. That's the word in Greek. It's, it's a fling like this. We might say somebody gets kicked to the curb. It's, it's, it's this extreme sense of rejection where you're helpless, you're kicked out. And Jesus sees this crowd as being harassed, agitated, uneasy, not at peace, not at rest, and he sees them as being helpless. They're rejected. They're tossed to the curb. And, and in his day, they, they literally were. I mean, they're living in the Roman Empire. You understand? The Roman Empire is probably one of the most oppressive, one of the most oppressive governments in history. And, and in the Roman Empire, you've got these Jewish people, they're paying upwards of 70% of their income in taxes to a government that literally doesn't care about them. You have a two-tiered, talk about a two-tiered justice system. There was the Romans, and there's everybody else, and they all knew it. Everybody knew where they stood. They're harassed. They don't know what to do. There's nothing they can do about it, and they're rejected. They're living under a religious system that literally, literally promoted rejection because there was no way that the average person could possibly meet the demands of their religion. No way. So can you imagine living that way? Every day of your life, 
You're giving up 70% of your income to a government that hates you, and you're living in a religious system that says you're a loser. If I could just summarize it, this is the condition of these people. I don't know, friends, I, I look around, I think, boy, we live in similar times. I think more and more and more people are beginning to wake up to the fact that the government fails you, that the men and women that you elected into office to serve you, they can't be trusted. They care more about themselves than they do serving you and your needs. We also live under a popular religion these days called secular humanism. That's really the popular religion. I know there's no churches that say, oh, we're the secular humanist church, but it, that's the philosophy, that's the belief of the age. And secular humanism is basically believes this, that all people are good, unless, of course, you disagree with them, and then you're evil. That's secular humanism. And it's a system where the rules are constantly changing. They're redefining what's right and what's wrong every single day. You, it, you're dizzy, can't keep up with it. And people live under this constant pressure of, if I don't keep up with it, if I say the wrong thing, I'll get canceled or I'll get fired. I'm, I'll have my friends leave me. I mean, it's, it's oppressive. It's oppressive. See, and, and, and this, this is what you and I are living under, harassed and helpless. And Jesus sees them, it says, as being a sheep without a shepherd. And I wonder if God might be calling you to be a shepherd. I think he is. Because this crowd is harassed and helpless, and they, they need somebody to lead them home. You know, uh, sheep are the only animal, I'm told, who can't make their way back home. Like, they, they wander, they find a patch of grass, they start eating, they get lost, and they can't make it back to where they started from. I mean, it's interesting. You know, chickens are dumb, and even they know how to roost at night. You know, like, they go back to their roost wherever they go. But sheep don't. Therefore, sheep need a shepherd. They need someone to guide them. Friends, I see a lot of sheep being led by wolves in our culture. If the shepherds don't begin to do something, the wolves will continue to have a heyday, won't they? So they require that. But check this out. Jesus is only one person. And he, he can't possibly shepherd all of these massive crowds. So, so what does Jesus do? He, he asks for help. Uh, no, not really. Not exactly. Interesting. Look what Jesus does next. Look at verses 37 and 38 in Matthew 9 in our text. It says, Jesus then said to his disciples, hey, you guys do something about that. No, that's not what he says, does he? He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus asks his disciples to pray and ask God for more help. I think that's interesting. I think it's very gracious of Jesus, actually. It's interesting, right? Jesus doesn't go, what? You guys don't see that? You don't see that crowd? What, are you blind? You know, he's not judgmental, is he? Jesus is so gracious. He's like, hey, hey, boys, would you do something? See this crowd? Would you do something? Would you um, pray about it? Just pray about it. That's what I'm asking you to do. Now, why would Jesus do that? I think because Jesus knows 
that when you start to spend time in the presence of God in prayer, the heart of God begins to rub off on you. See, you can see religion says, hey, you better love more people, better love better, do a better job. That's religion. Relationship, Jesus goes, hey, would you just come close? Come close, hang out with me, spend some time in the presence of Father, and he knows that his heart is going to begin to rub off on your heart, and next thing you know, who's out there taking care of the sheep? <laughs> you are. Jesus is brilliant how he does that. He doesn't judge them for not seeing it. He just invites them in. You see, the two greatest commandments, and we know them, love God and... Come on, you guys, that's not a trick question. Love God and love your neighbor, right? We know those, the two greatest commandments. In that order, obey. You're right, sweetheart. In that order, love God leads to loving my neighbor. See, religion tells you, you better love your neighbor. And relationship says, love God. And you love him, he'll rub off, and you'll begin loving your neighbor. Love God, then love your neighbor. So Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, pray. Just pray to the Lord of the harvest. And what happens next? The Lord of the harvest sends them into the harvest field. Jesus told a parable in another time in the Bible. It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. And parables are great. If you want to turn your Bibles, you can to Luke chapter 10, verses 35 and 37, 25 through 37. To keep me honest, I won't read it, but I'll tell the story. But we know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And parables are great because they work like memes. I read an article this week that said that Gary Larson, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the author thinks that Gary Larson is the father of the modern meme. Because you know who Gary Larson is? He wrote the uh, design. He's the cartoonist that does the far side cartoons. And you think about his brilliance as, as an artist is that he can take this little square and a goofy little sketch and a quick little saying, and he can tell a whole joke in that one square and, either, and just leave you busting a gut. It's How does that happen? Isn't that something? It's pretty clever. And, and, and some people get it, and other people don't. Some people look at far side cartoons and just think they're dumb. And other people have a whole stack of the books in their bathroom. And they, they read them and they love them. They laugh all the time. You can see it, read them over and over and over again. What is that? That's how a parable worked. Jesus could tell, Jesus could pack all of these points. He could pack all this meat into this short little story, this little picture story that just leaves you thinking. And guess what? The same effect. Some people got it and other people didn't. See? So here's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's see if we get it. Lord, please let us get it today. Here's how it goes. You have a Jewish man. What kind of man? Jewish man. He's on a trip. He goes to Jericho, and while he's on his business trip, he gets robbed. He gets beat up. He gets left for dead along the side of the road. As he's laying there, near death, bleeding, a Jewish priest, what kind of priest? Jewish, sees him. And what does he do? He keeps on walking right past him. You think, wow, that's sad. He's a man of the cloth. I would have thought the priest would help him out. He doesn't. Next comes a Jewish Levite. What kind of Levite? Jewish Levite. The Levites were also religious leaders, well-respected members of society. You would have expected the best of the best to come out of a Levite. He sees 
the need of this Jewish man. And what does he do? Goes the other side of the road, keeps on walking. Now, Jesus is telling this story, right? You think, well, boy, if the priest and the Levite aren't going to help out their own Jewish brethren, what's going to happen? Jesus doesn't let us wait too long. He says, along comes a Samaritan. A Samaritan? They're the worst of the worst. See, from, the, the Jew, from a Jewish perspective, Samaritans were dirty, filthy people. You wouldn't trust them. And the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. On any given good day, any other circumstance, the Jewish man in that gutter would spit in the Samaritan's face. He wouldn't even want to talk to him. They hated each other. Oh, Jesus is telling a pretty steamy story, isn't he? Now it's shaping up. The Samaritan comes by, and everybody in the audience that Jesus is telling the story to is thinking, oh, no, he's not. No, he's not going to go there. No, he's not doing it. Jesus does it. The Samaritan, the Bible, Jesus tells us, the Samaritan is moved with compassion. And he sees the Jewish man, and he comes, and he binds up his wounds, oil and wine on his wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the nearest hotel, offers to pay for, he pays for all of his expenses until the man gets better. That's the story. You can imagine that Jesus' crowd would be left speechless. That's impossible. Samaritans don't do that. That's the point. See, what Jesus is saying is that compassion, see, compassion, you don't have to be a good person to have compassion. We, we tend to link compassion with morality as if, you know, only good people can have compassion. That's kind of how our culture is, right? That's part of that whole moral superiority, virtue signaling thing. Like, look how loving I am. Everybody wants to prove. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 no. Compassion is not linked to morality. Compassion is linked to the need. You see the need and you meet the need. It's, it's not about a good person because they would have never thought of a Samaritan as a good person. Not only that, it's not about agreeing because the Samaritan and the Jew would have disagreed on everything. They were, they were polar opposites, religiously, spiritually, I mean, uh, politically, economically, I mean, socially, all, every ways. So here's the Samaritan helping this Jew who would not agree with, who, who would hate him on a given, on a normal day. Isn't that something? So I don't have to agree with you to have compassion for you. See, what we learn from this is that compassion sees the need, not the person with the need. Compassion literally is like need-focused. What did Jesus see? He saw the crowds. He saw harassed and helpless, and he was moved to do something about that. And what's the Samaritan see? He doesn't see Jew. He doesn't see enemy. He sees broken down, beat up, bleeding, about to die need, and I'm going to meet that need. That's compassion. Isn't that something? Compassion sees the need, meets it with love, repeat. In a sense, I heard, I heard a video of that this week. I thought that was cool. See the need, meet with love, repeat. That's the heart of compassion. I see the need, I meet with love, 
All I need to have compassion, essentially, is to notice the need. Do you notice the need? That's the first step, practically, to getting compassion. In his typical hard-hitting fashion, James says this, James chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. I love the book of James because he just hits you between the eyeballs. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what does James say? What good is it? What good is it? Doesn't do any good. The guy's still hungry, still thirsty, still needs clothes, just because you wished them well. See? Compassion. You see, compassion is, you know, if you're hungry, here's a hungry guy. Let me give you a Bible. Here. Here's, here's somebody desperate. I'm praying for you. Praying for you. You know? That's not compassion. Because compassion literally seeks to meet the practical need. Compassion, you see, is the opposite of being self-absorbed. A self-absorbed person never feels moved to get involved in other people's problems because the self-absorbed person doesn't see. All they see is themselves. All they see is my schedule, my budget, my time, me, my problems, my issues, me. A person of compassion sees the needs around them and says, okay, I, need to do, I can do something about that. That's compassion. See, the God we worship is a highly practical God. He's the God who saw the needs of humanity, and then he became one of us in order to fix it. He is mega practical. He also knows something. God also knows that compassion is good for the compassion giver. I think that's interesting. I think it's a blessing. This is something that modern psychologists are actually catching up to. In Psychology Today magazine, they ran this article published by Shapira and Mongrain back in 2010, so it's a little old, says finding a, they found a connection between depression and compassion. They've, they discovered that increased compassion actually equals decreased depression. That the more compassionate someone is, the less depressed they are. See, what happens is we get into a funk, and what do we typically do? We isolate, which only makes us more funky. You notice that? It doesn't work. The key to getting out of the funk is to actually get out of myself, get back to the game, start serving. Another, another um, article in 1998, three psychologists named Kirkpatrick, Johnson, and Beeb, they linked compassionate activities such as volunteer work to increased academic aspirations and self-esteem in teenagers. So you want your kid to do better in school? Have them volunteer somewhere. Have them get involved. They begin to show compassion to other people, and it actually has a positive impact on their grades and on their learning in school. See, no wonder, no wonder our, our kids nowadays seem to be more depressed and confused than ever because we've been giving them the wrong message. We've been protecting them and never challenging them. We, we have them gazing at their navels and thinking about their feelings and coloring books and safe spaces, you know, telling them to find themselves. But, you know, they'll never find themselves inside themselves. That's not where you find out who you are. You find yourself as you serve. 
You got to get outside the bubble. I got to give myself away. That's where I begin to discover myself. That's where I begin to discover the gifts and the talents and the passions that God's put within me as I begin to give my life away to other people. See? And, we, and kids know instinctively. You know, instead, what they do now, what people are doing now is they, you know, post stuff online. They think they're making a difference. by. You're not making any difference by posting stuff online. That's not compassionate, you know? You're not stopping racism with your posts. It's ridiculous. You, you can't exercise compassion through your cell phone. And I think we instinctively know that. But all of our activities, they're not a leading to anywhere, which just makes people more depressed, more confused. And maybe the answer is, why don't we just follow what Scripture gives us and exercise compassion, where I literally help literal people, where I literally serve literal needs. You know what I mean? Like, here's literal food, here's literal water. There's a literal hungry and a literal thirsty person. Why don't I put these literal things to those literal needs? See, it's, it's, not, it's not virtual. The good Samaritan didn't tweet about the guy in the ditch. You know, somebody ought to help this guy. Really? This is terrible. Somebody ought to do something about this. It's not compassion. He actually helped the guy. That's compassion. Does that make sense? <laughs> and, and, you know, we don't have to agree. I guess I want to come back to that. We don't have to agree with the people with someone in order to give compassion to that person. We don't. I, I feel like that's a message in our culture right now that's just so wrong. It's got us so divided that I can't love you if you, if you don't agree with me. That's not true. And, and I feel like our culture is ripe for the people of God to step into it, who say, you know what, I, I, I disagree with a lot about what you're doing, but you don't see me running from you right now, do you? I'm loving you. I'm serving you. I'm giving you myself. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, like as, a, as a Christian, as one who believes in the inspiration of God's word, I believe this word to be 100% true. You know, do I believe that homosexual sex is a sin? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but if there's a gay man who's in need, does that mean I don't meet that need? No. I serve that need. Because compassion doesn't see the person, it sees the need. See? Compassion is need-focused, not person-focused. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And, and God is a compassionate God. He sees the need, and he met the need, didn't he, for you and me. And so you and I model that in the way that we live as well. It, it kind of works like this. I, I have that. You might have wondered why I have this in my pocket. It works like the pilot light on your gas stove. You know how the pilot light works on your gas stove. You have this, you have this light, and it, sits, and it burns all the time. And it sits right next to the gas burner. And then when you turn the gas on to the burner, it ignites, and now you have heat, and you can cook with it, and so forth. Compassion is like that pilot light. You know, when you hear a message about compassion, and I, um, my prayer is that you heard, <laughs> I just blew that out. Uh, my, um, my, it's, you, you get it. You see the picture in your mind. Keep it in your head. So, you know, my prayer even this morning has been like that you would not somehow feel as though I'm twisting your arm 
or imposing some other rule on you, like you have to be a better person. Like, I hope you know that's not my heart. But what compassion really is, is this. I get close to the heart of God, like we said. His heart rubs off on me. He lights the pilot light. It's, it's lit, right? There it is, it's lit. And now it's ready to go. So that you're pumping gas at the gas station. And you're just pumping gas. But you're praying, you're, you're, you're looking, your eyes are open. You're praying, God, I just want you to bless all these people paying too much for gas right now. Just bless them, Lord. You know, you just bless them. And then you know what? You see a need. And then suddenly the gas goes to the burner and it ignites and God moves you into action. See, the, the pilot light's lit. See, don't, don't think of compassion as being, you know, you're this person who's just weighted down with all the cares of the world. That's, that's not the way of Jesus at all. It's just, I got the pilot light lit. I'm ready to go so that when I see the need, I can jump into action. Does that make sense? Now, I know some of you hear this. I just end with this. You know, some of you hear this and your personality is you're more introverted. And you think, oh, no, that's, no, I can't do that. Stand at a gas station, talk to strangers. <laughs> right? That's, that's not you. And, and I get that. But can I give us an encouragement? <laughs> you know, if you were to do it, that's a God thing. You know what I mean? If, like, if I do it, you go, oh, that's just Doug being Doug. I mean, right? I'll talk to the gas pump. Like, I don't need to have a person there. You know, I'll talk to anybody. So you go, see, that, see that's no big deal if Doug Rouse does it. You say, well, that's your personality, Doug. You talk to everybody. Sure, right. But do you understand? So do you see the power of it? You know, every personality, we all have different personalities that God's blessed us with. And every personality does have its challenges to be the full person that Jesus has died for you to be. Wouldn't you agree? So like you want to take an extrovert and you want them to be more like Jesus, tell them to sit quiet in a room all day with their Bible, right? Okay, by four o'clock, they're suicidal. You know, they're thinking, right? But you say, well, but some of you introverts are going, oh, that just sounds glorious. Oh, that'd be a great, it's like my idea of a perfect day, see? The Lord's designed us differently. But you see how then that extrovert who has to challenge themselves and discipline themselves to sit still and quiet for a day in solitude, like that's part of them becoming more like Jesus. And maybe you as an introvert becoming more like Jesus means you're at the gas pump and you're praying and you're looking and you're sweating bullets, right? And maybe the Lord will move. Does that make sense? I just want to encourage you. This message, uh, I mean, it's for all of us. But boy, as an introvert, like you more than any of us, have the opportunity to demonstrate the power of God. I can't wait to see what he does through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you so much for demonstrating compassion. You saw our need. You saw us lost. You saw us broken. You saw us... Um, rejected. You saw us mired in sin, in our own mess. That's what you saw, Jesus. And you came to get us. I thank you so much 
for your compassion. And Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us today. Move in us. We want your heart, God. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.